So you hear me? Is, yep. I got you. Okay. How you doing there, everyone? This is Rafael Garcia here with Shawan Humes for episode 130 of the MMA Reigns podcast. Shawan, why don't you let everyone know how you doing there, sir? Doing great as usual. Ready to talk some mixed martial arts and all the news that comes with it, or drama nowadays, political and professional. Yeah, man, there's quite a bit to talk about. And from the top, you know, I really want to talk about uh, Kobe Covington first because he's kind of at the center of a lot of the conversations that we're going to have tonight. But let's focus on what occurred this past Saturday. Before we do that, though, I want to say thank you to everyone who's taking the time to listen to our content. Please be sure to go over to MMARatings.net and rate the fights. Let us know what you thought about all the action and how much you are anticipating the fights coming up. Go over to Instagram and Twitter where you can catch us on MMARatings.net and follow all of our foolishness there. I'm at R Garcia Sports, R Garcia underscore sports, and Shawan Humes is at Black Jordan Breen. So you can catch us there as we talk about everything across all of professional sports uh, day in and day out. But tonight we're talking about Kobe Covington first, where he on Saturday picked up a big win over Robbie Lawler, former welterweight champion, and basically submitted himself in a position to be the top contender for Kamar Usman and what I think will be the most important fight at 170 pounds this year. And he did so by dominating Lawler over the course of 25 minutes. All five rounds were um, sent his way. As he landed, I believe it was 553 significant strikes, which is a, a UFC record. Um, and he really did a number on Lawler in a way that a lot of people weren't too sure what happened. Uh, we kind of thought that this would be his path to victory involved more wrestling, but he actually outstruck the former champion from start to finish. So, Shawan, break down what you saw here and let us know what your, what your thoughts were about this fight. Well, uh, the biggest mistake I, I feel, I feel Robbie's team, it's almost like they didn't really watch Kobe Covington fight before because Robbie was doing what he normally does, which works fine against a per- person who's actually trying to land strikes against you. And what was happening earlier, a friend of the show, Ryan Wagner, was actually talking about this on Twitter, and I just expounded upon it. When they were fighting, Kobe was throwing volume at Robbie, but Robbie would go back to the cage, and he would just start slipping and rolling and blocking and parrying and countering. And that's fine if you're going up against an RDA or, or a Donald Cowboy Cerrone, somebody who's really trying to put a lot of damage on you because they're changing the power level, they're changing the speeds, they're, they're trying to actually do a lot of damage, trying to beat you up, they're trying to put you away. But Kobe Covington, what he does is he throws enough volume it creates opportunities for him to transition into clinch, into body body locks, clinches, or force into double legs where he can get takedowns or he can yank you off the cage and get takedowns. So what Robbie should have been doing is instead of just parrying, slipping, and rolling, he should have been stepping back, pivoting off at an angle, or backing, pivoting off, or he should have been backing off in angles because if you go off an angle and you get off the center line or you pivot off the center line, a guy can't keep throwing volume at you. For someone to throw volume at you continuously – you have to be more or less in front of them. If you're stepping off the center line at an angle or you're circling out, they can't throw volume. They have to stop, reset, chase you again with volume. You can't throw 10, 15, 20, 40 shots in a row. You can't do that because the guy's moving. Robbie never did that. Robbie never did that. He essentially stood in front of him and was just picking off shots. A lot of the shots weren't getting through super clean. And to be honest, Kobe Kobe was throwing for volume. He wasn't throwing for power. And if you're only going to throw light shots or throw medium shots you can throw 500 shots you can't throw 500 hard shots just like if you had to run at a certain speed you can't maybe running 26 miles is harder but if you 
you can run at any speed you want, then you can do 26 miles and it's not as draining because you're not really pushing yourself past a certain point. So what Covington was doing was he throwing the volume and he used the volume to get into those entries or to make Lawler get overcommitted to defending takedowns. Because if you're worried about takedowns, then your striking defense suffers to a degree, your striking offense suffers to a degree. And Colby Covington used the threat of the takedowns and he used those kind of grappling exchanges where they're grinding and clinches and up against the cage. He used those to kind of wear Lawler down, throw off Lawler's timing, and essentially just to make him make him into a one-dimensional defensive fighter. And he just overwhelmed him with volume. He, I don't think he was doing a lot of damage. I don't think his striking is suddenly high level. I think a lot of his striking is base, basically effective because he has the threat of the takedown or the threat of grinding you out in, in grappling exchanges. It's the reverse Dominic Cruz. Dominic Cruz uses, uses volume to get you to overcommit. He hits you with a reactive takedown. Colby Covington uses volume to get you where he wants you. Then he gets his hands on you and he wears you down. And that's all he did. And Lawler gave him every opportunity to do so because he wouldn't keep the fight in the center of the cage because he wouldn't pivot away and he wouldn't step off at angles. He just backed up and let Covington tee off on him so he could defend takedowns and slip and roll. I guess he was expecting Covington to get tired and Covington never really did. So And Lawler never got going. And that was essentially the story of the fight. He let Covington dictate where the fight took place. And once Covington controlled where the fight took place, there was there was nothing left to there was nothing left to discuss in the fight. He didn't Lawler didn't do any of the things that we discussed him doing last Thursday that would have got him a victory. And I said for him to win, he had to use his footwork, he had to feint, he had to circle, he had to use angles to throw off Covington's volume and to pick his shots. He didn't do any of that. And as and as we predicted, because we I picked Lawler, I will admit I picked Lawler, but I said if Lawler doesn't do these things, he's going to get pushed back he's gonna go overwhelmed he didn't do those things he got pushed back he got overwhelmed and Covington won a very one-sided dominant decision over Robbie Lawler so before we talk about the success that Covington had I want to talk about Lawler and kind of wrap up his piece of this story do you think this was more about his inability to do so or at 37 years old and all the damage and all the you know the wars he's been in do we think his decline is imminent now? Are we going to see him uh, kind of take a downward spiral? Are you are you willing to predict that that is next for him in his uh, upcoming bouts? Well, part of it is decline. He's thirty seven. He's been in some. He's fought in middleweight. He's fought at welterweight. He's been in some huge wars. So there's going to be physical decline. I don't know that the de- I don't know that the decline can be strictly blamed for this because we've seen Robbie Lawler do this before. There's been fights before where he's just gone on cruise control and he hasn't gotten finished he hasn't necessarily gotten beaten up but he hasn't done anything that would create a turn the tie for him or win the fight and in general he's the kind of guy who takes rounds off he doesn't consistently fight a hard five rounds he doesn't consistently fight a hard three rounds he has these huge bursts of offense where his power and his athleticism essentially turn the tie and he's got enough skill where he can land that power he can set that power up and do huge amounts of damage or score huge amounts of points, which either end the fight or put the put his opponent in a defensive mind state where they don't want to take any more chances. They don't want to push forward. They don't want to impose their will on him. So that's part of it. This is historically what Robbie Lawler has done. The biggest issue I see is the fact that he didn't he didn't make any real adjustment in his game plan. He saw what happened against RDA, who's another volume guy who presses forward. It's just he's a volume guy who presses forward using strikes. Like actually tries to hurt you. Covington uses them to set up his grappling. 
Lawler did the same thing. He backed himself to the fence, and he just rolled and parried and slipped. He had the wrong game plan. He was never in the positions he needed to be in or in the spots he needed to be in to give himself a chance to win that fight. For the most part, he was always backing up in straight lines or up against the cage. Now, the only the part where the decline comes in is usually two or three times in a fight, Lawler will just open up. He'll open up a can, and he'll just tee off, and he'll land something that can turn the fight. He was never able to do it in this fight. And that's, that's where the lack of seasoning or the lack of strategy or pre- preparation hits you the hardest because you no longer have that cheat code you can just grab onto and turn the fight around. Now it's got to be something where you put yourself in position, you've worked, you've worked, you worked to set this up, and you've slowly taken away what the guy's trying to do. Lawler, just he started off on the wrong foot, and he was never, never able to get momentum. He was never able to really establish his momentum. So is the decline part of it? Sure. But decline's going to happen. A better, more seasoned fighter, though, is able to make an adjustment or have an initial game plan that makes it harder for his opponent to work their plan A. Lawler made it really easy for Covington to work his plan A. Covington basically was in control from the word go, which means Lawler had no plan or no setup or no strategy built to take what his strengths were away. So I think a lot of it is poor strategy and, and, and bad preparation. The, de- the physical decline is going to play a part because of Lawler's tendency to mentally check out in fights. But if he would have had a better setup and a better plan A, I think he would have had more chances to do the work he needed to do instead of just being put on the defensive basically 30 seconds into the fight. So let's turn the focus then over to Kobe Covington as he was basically able to establish his will from start to finish. He, you know, Kobe was is someone who at one time I was a fan of his, and we'll talk about why. Uh, we'll talk about why that shifted later, because he was a type who took his wrestling and applied it to a way in MMA that allowed him to get victories. But at the same time, you could tell he was growing in his uh, skill set. At the same time, when we last saw him fight, he was getting pieced up by Damian Maya, and he looked like he's found a way to. Um, close that gap where is his ceiling because i was listening to uh i believe it was some commentary this week talking about we may have seen the best that he has to offer that he's reached his ceiling do you think that that's the case because he's definitely grown from when he fought damian maya to now but are we at a point where this is the best that we will see of kobe Covington, or do you think that there's continued growth that he can offer well personally I don't know how much he grew because the fight is different. Against Robbie Lawler, he's a guy, if you put him on his back foot, he's essentially, he's essentially useless. He's best when he can push you backwards and he can get some momentum and assert his will to either make you hesitant or just blow through you. Against Maya, his whole thing of landing strikes, Maya wants to get those reactive takedowns on you. So he had to approach Maya differently because if he rushes in with the volume, Maya will just cover up, cover up, back to the cage, cut an angle, go for a takedown. And he didn't want to be in any sort of extended grappling exchanges with Maya when Maya was fresh. So he, he took a different kind of approach. Kobe Covington is a guy who I, I don't think he's a highly skilled fighter as far as like technically skilled and submissions, technically skilled. His wrestling seems pretty good. I don't think it's elite. His striking is serviceable, but his striking is serviceable for what he does. He wants to do with it. Same thing as Dominic Cruz. Not really technically high-level striking, but very strategically high-level striking. I don't think he's a great athlete. Um, his defense is awful. If Lawler could have pivoted or got some forward pressure, he would have pieced 
them. He would have pieced up Covington. Lawler gave away the play in the first 30 seconds of the fight. He didn't give himself a chance. Now, the thing with Covington is a lot of guys in mixed martial arts, they still don't know how to fight off their back foot. They still don't know how to use a jab consistently. They still don't know how to feint or walk guys into shots or pivot or, or get off the center line. A lot of guys you put pressure on, they'll move right back. So his style takes advantage of a huge hole in the game of 85, 87% of guys in mixed martial arts, even the elite guys. They don't, know, they don't respond very well to the volume. They don't respond very well to pressure. They just either stand the ground and start swinging, which he'll, he'll take that, or they back up trying to get away from it so they can create space so they can land their shot, which is, puts them against the cage where he wants them. So I don't know so much that he's improved. I just think, technically speaking, as far as from a strategical point of view, he's attacking holes that most guys don't know how to address. And things like fighting off your back foot and feints and defensive positioning, you can't pick that up overnight. You can't pick that up over a year and a half. That takes time to pick up. That has to be a consistent thing. So he's essentially put himself with a style that's only going to be matched if he faces a guy with comparable cardio and a guy who's physical enough to stop his forward progression and impose his will through wrestling or just power striking himself. It has good enough wrestling where he can force Colby to engage with him on the ground or force Colby to stay on the feet with him. Colby's just fighting much smarter than everybody else. It's... I can see why somebody said this was the best he's seen of him because he's not going to get any more dynamic. He's not going to become a harder hitter. And I don't think his striking is going to get fine-tuned enough where he can make leaps and bounds with it. He's still going to depend on volume and grappling transitions to get his work done. And defensively, it's going to be years before he gets competent at it. So I really think where he's at right now, you're going to see minor changes and minor improvements. Like his wrestling got a little better, his riding, his control, his ability to extend grappling exchanges and really wear, wear on guys and not let you get away, that improved. But I don't think you're going to see any big, huge improvements moving forward because I don't think he has, A, the time to have them, or B, the physical talent to. I, I think this is essentially what you've got from this point moving forward. And once, once the recipe's out on how to beat Covington, I think you'll see a lot of guys start to beat Covington. So let's talk about beating Covington now because his next – challenge seems to be coming from Kamaru Usman and Luke Thomas did a very interesting dissected on these two guys where a lot of people assume okay they're both standout wrestlers and they both like to uh, be aggressive and get to the takedown but if you look at their numbers it's actually a different story because Covington does most of his striking on the feet that's where he does a lot of his scoring and he doesn't do a lot of striking on the ground where Usman gets to clinch type positions striking from that position and then um, banging on guys when he gets them down to the ground so looking at those styles how do you size up these two men when they face each other I expect them to be booked on a fight later on this year or maybe early 2019 well the main issue becomes can Kobe literally push Usman back. His wrestling won't be as big a factor. Um, even though Kobe Covington's not a big welterweight, he's a wrestler, which means he's stronger than the average welterweight. He can muscle guys around a little bit. I don't know that he can muscle Usman in clinches. I don't know that he can bully him. I know that he can't take him down left and right. I know that's not going to happen. So the issue becomes, can he push Usman back? Can he force Usman against the cage? Can he force Usman to be strictly defensive? I don't know that he can do that because his the threat of his wrestling will not be there against Usman, in my opinion. They fought similar guys, and while you can't use MMA math, Usman was able to one-up him in his performances against RDA and his performance against Maya. He did better in each fight because of the clear physical advantage he had that allowed him 
to take more chances, to control where the fight went, and to kind of dictate the pace of the fight just through, just through pure physicality and aggression. So Kobe's biggest weapons outside of his mind are being his physicality and his aggression. I don't know how he imposes those things against Usman. Now, Usman's not a great striker. He's not a dynamic striker, per se. He's not great in open, open cage. But if he can force Covington back, I don't know that Covington, I don't know that Covington can do anything about him. I've seen Covington on the back, but his defense is no good. His escapes are no good. His ability to generate offense off the fence or, or push back is not great. And against Usman, I don't see how he doesn't get pushed back. I, I don't see that. They, they both want to get to the same spot. They just have different ways of getting to it. And I don't know that he can impose his will from those spots like he was able to do against a Lawler or a uh, RDA or a Maya. So, I mean, I think I'm, I'm very interested in this fight because I want to see how the styles play out. Let me ask you a question. Compare this to what you saw when Woodley and Usman fought. That fight looked a lot different than I think a lot of people really prepared were prepared to accept. Um, do you see the same type of situation going down with Usman and Covington either way, where one guy absolutely dominates the other in that type of fashion? Uh, well, if Covington's cardio is what, it, what it's out to be, and what I mean by that is when he's in control, he looks like a beast. But remember, Tito Ortiz used to look, look like he had great cardio until he started facing guys who could defend his takedown and force him to fight where he didn't want to. Then his cardio started looking real shaky. So far, Covington's been able to dictate pace and place. So, yeah, he looks unbeatable. If his cardio holds up and he can constantly force scrambles and he can constantly force position and he can constantly throw, even though he's facing a guy he can't dictate against, then I don't see the fight being one-sided. But if at any point Usman's actual physicality and ability to literally control him and hold him in, in place and get his strikes off or hold him in place and work him over on the ground, if that's a big factor, if he can in fact do those things, I don't see how it's not one-sided. Covington hasn't shown much from his back. Covington hasn't shown much when guys have been able to pressure him. And Covington hasn't shown much when guys have been able to hit him. When guys hit him, he gets hit. He hasn't shown any defensive awareness. And he, and he has shown that when he's not confident in his ability to dominate an, a, a, a specific area, he can be, he can be vulnerable. Maya is a, a chief example. Even RDA. RDA is a small welterweight. And he wasn't able to necessarily wear him down or necessarily just break him down. Not, not where it was one-sided. Usman's a much better athlete, a much more physical athlete. Not, a, not, not the striker, but a much better wrestler and just a much better athlete, a much bigger fighter. So the question is, can Kobe, can Kobe maintain that pace in those circumstances? He hasn't faced a guy with Usman's size, wrestling chops, and athleticism. He's been facing guys close to his range, his size, and his, his, and his ability, and guys um, who haven't had his wrestling pedigree. And as you know, as somebody who used wrestling yourself, it's a huge advantage when you can put a pace on somebody who, who, who hasn't wrestled. They don't know the wrestler's pace. They can't maintain it. They can do it in spots. They can't do it for three rounds, for five rounds. Against Usman, he's facing a guy who, in theory, should be able to maintain that pace over the length of five rounds. And Kobe's never had to face that before. We don't know how he responds when that guy's not tiring, when that guy ups the pace on him. So let me ask a question that's... Um, I don't know if I should ask this question now. Actually, it'll kind of be a preview to what we're going to go get into later on. But... 
Kobe Covington's rhetoric. Um, do you think people sell him short just because of the foolish nature of what he says? It was pretty interesting listening to a lot of the commentary and how many people have utter disdain for this guy. And there's a sense that it taints the way people respect his abilities as a fighter. Do you think that's a real issue that we're seeing with Covington, that, that people are downplaying him simply because he's so foolish anytime a camera gets in front of him? I think it's an issue with anybody who talks a lot. And even though even though they're different guys, like you have a Conor McGregor, everybody, he's a loud mouth, he thinks he's so good, he's so great. And I think a lot of people underestimated the fact that he can actually fight. And then when they get in there and he, he, doesn't, he doesn't collapse under pressure, he doesn't fall the first time you hit him, you take him down and he gets back up, it's like, oh, wait, wait a minute, I wasn't expecting this. And I think Colby Covington is even worse because he he's not charming like, chill he doesn't have any charisma like connor everything he says is very cringy and and he has bad comedic timing and he's you can tell he's got lines saved in his head that he can't deliver the right way he doesn't have a natural way with words so it makes him look like even more of an idiot it makes him seem like he's an idiot like he's incompetent like the only reason he's getting these shots is because he has a shtick because before he got it he was about to get cut from the ufc so i think a lot of people get caught up in the rhetoric and get caught up in the fact that they don't like him and they don't really pay attention to his actual fight craft when people were talking about the fights before against Lawler like oh Lawler's gonna crush him because Lawler hits hard and it's like I picked Lawler but if you remember my breakdown of the fight I pretty much said Covington's gonna beat him because I get I listed like five reasons Covington beats him I just went with Lawler because I figured Lawler with his seasoning would come in better prepared and be able to get, keep him from getting the spots he wanted to I think Lawler was prepared for a certain level and a certain approach and when Covington didn't give it to him he didn't have a backup plan Covington made a strategic evolution in his game plan, and he's fighting in a way that people, that exploits holes that these guys haven't figured out how to cover or to mask. And that's why he's beating guys. People aren't giving him credit for being smart. They're not giving him credit for being tough, and they're not giving him credit for being able to understand the game and having world-class preparation. And I think a lot of guys do underestimate him. And then as a result, by the time they realize they're in a real fighter, he can really do what he said he, could, he, said he could do, it's too late. You're halfway through the fight. You're down two rounds. It's two to it's two zero or two one, and now you got to come back. So I, I do think his act disarms people, and I think that's why he does it. That's part of the reason he does it to make himself like seem to draw attention, but also to disarm his opponent. So when they get in the fight, by the time they realize he's as good as they said he was, you're in a hole, and it's really hard to come back in a three round fight. And if you're two one down, it's kind of hard to come back in a five round fight too, especially if you're not a finisher. So yeah, I. I I think that does take away from some of the brilliance of what he does. And there is some brilliance to it. Not not the, the trash talk, that's awful, but his actual fighting. There is a brilliance to it. True. We're going to dive into some of the impact of his trash talk in a little bit. Before we do that, I want to talk about Frankie Edgar. Um, I'm not sure if you saw the news this week, but he is... Uh, finally moving down to bantamweight, 135 pounds, a former lightweight champion, just coming off of a loss to Aldo, uh, not Aldo, excuse me, to Max Holloway for the featherweight title. I think this is his second loss at a featherweight title. He also has, is this his second attempt? No, this is his third attempt. That was his third attempt at yeah, the featherweight third. title. And he also lost one uh, attempt at the lightweight title as well after he lost it to Benson Henderson. Yeah, trying to regain it, yeah. Yeah, correct, after he lost it to Benson Henderson. So now we're in a situation where 
Frankie Edgar is talking about moving down to 135, and a lot of people think that there's a path to him getting to the 135 title. Uh, before we talk about that, what are your thoughts about him moving down to 135? Is this at a point where it's past his opportunity to win a boat there, or is this the right time for this move? Um, I mean, I think it's incredibly reactionary of him to do so, because I, I can see why he did it partly, because now Marias got beaten and beaten decisively by Cejudo, so he's, he's probably like three to five fights away from another title fight, because the division is pretty tough, so he's nowhere near a title fight. So if Frankie was going to move down, now is the time where he can go after the title, and if he can put some wins together, he doesn't have to worry about fighting his teammate or, or blocking his teammate's opportunity to get a title, because his teammate already had a shot of the belt. He, he fumbled the bag. So now Frankie has more of a clear path because with his name, his star power, in quotes, he could win one or two fights. I mean, Uriah Faber won one, and we're talking about he might get a title fight. So um, Frankie could win one or two fights over the right people, and he could be right in the mix automatically. So in that instance, it's good because it won't hurt his, his teammate, and it, he, and it puts him in a position where he can get that title fight. In my opinion, where it's bad is Frankie's really declined physically. He's not as quick as he used to be. He's not as mobile as he used to be. His skill-wise, he's much better. His footwork's actually as good as, it, as people said it was seven years ago. His striking, his transition to wrestling, it's all improved greatly. But he's declined. And when he, if you remember, at lightweight, guys had a hard time really hitting him with the shots that counted. And he was able to move around and outmaneuver people. When he came to featherweight, that speed and that mobility and that cardio advantage wasn't as distinct. A lot of guys who weren't world-class strikers put hands on Frankie. And now Frankie's another half step or a full step slower, and he's going down to another weight class with world-class athletes who were even faster than the guys who he couldn't get away from at featherweight. That's not necessarily a recipe for success, if you understand what I'm saying. You're half, steps, you're half to a full step slower facing guys who are already faster than you at your peak and now are going to be much faster as you decline. So even if your skills and strategy are a little bit better, you're facing guys with comparable skill sets who have that huge cheat code of explosiveness, physicality, and speed. And Frankie's never Frankie's not used to fighting with a, with a, without a speed advantage. And when he has fought without a speed advantage, he has not looked great. And when he moves down, he's not going to have that. So one instance, it makes sense. Another instance, I feel like he should have did this three or four years ago. He took the shot at Jose Aldo. You didn't win it after the first two. Dropped down. He could have already had a title fight. He may have already been the Bantamweight champion by now. But because he waited, now he's going to be in line behind a lot of killers. There's no easy way to the belt. He's going to have to win at least two tough fights. And that, that, that's going to be an uphill battle for him, as far as I'm concerned. So the last thing I wanted to talk about when it comes to Frankie, because I appreciate your insight there. And I kind of agree with a lot of things that, that you said. I've been noticing an interesting trend about how the conversation about Edgar has been changing. If you notice, a lot of people seem almost fed up with him. And they talk about him as a way, there was a time where he was considered probably the greatest lightweight of all time, especially after the way he trounced uh, BJ Penn a couple of times, how good he looked against Benson Henderson. Many people think he, he, didn't, he didn't win that first fight. He didn't win that first fight. Yeah, as, uh, any, that's what I was going to say. Many people think he won that. He won the rematch. Um, he's had some great moments, but a lot of people are calling his resume into question that he's not the greatest of all time, or he's not even in that consideration, or he shouldn't even be considered in like any elite rankings. 
when I look at him, I'm going to equate him to like a Reggie Miller or a Patrick Ewing in, in the NBA. We're talking about these guys were all-time greats at their position. They are amongst the top 50 players in NBA history. On they're on that official list that was released by the NBA, but they ran into Michael Jordan. And when you ran into Michael Jordan that during that time, you weren't winning a ring no matter what you did. I put I put Frankie in that type of area when it comes to MMA. What do you think about that, and how would you compare his legacy looking back to his career and his peers? A lot of Frankie's hype come came from the fact that he was fighting these monsters at lightweight who were coming in at 180, 170, whatever it was, and Frankie wasn't even cutting weight. He was coming in at 155, fighting these guys who were 25 and 30 pounds heavier than them. That's where the legend of Frankie Edgar came from. It wasn't because he's a great athlete. He wasn't a dynamic finisher. He's generally never really been a dynamic finisher. He's not a dynamic submission guy. That didn't happen. And to be honest, a lot of his, a lot of his title reign, a lot of the hype came from it, came from those two come-from-behind wins over Great Maynard. If you really think about it, that's what really made his name because he took these huge beatings and fought his way back in and beat Gray Maynard. But as the career has gone forward, Gray Maynard has been exposed as a guy who relied heavily on physical attributes and was very one-dimensional in how he applied his skills. So when you beat a guy, if he goes on to future success, it makes you look a lot better. A lot of the guys that Frankie was beating, they didn't stay in the UFC very long afterwards. A lot of them went on losing streaks. Some of them aren't even in the game anymore. So it makes you wonder about his level of opposition. And though he did win the lightweight championship, most people didn't think he won it legitimately the first time. And even though he, when he fought, he fought Henderson, those fights were close, but, you know, Henderson won them and he came back down. It's just, Frankie doesn't have a, he doesn't have a standout win over an all-time great. I guess he has it over BJ, but that first, but when he's fighting BJ again, BJ just, he wasn't the same guy. And that last win he had over BJ, kind of, I think, put a bad taste in people's mouth. When he moved down to featherweight, he beat, he beat a lot of guys who were also Rams, but he was never able to beat the man at featherweight. He had three shots at it, and he couldn't, he was never really in any of those fights. Against Aldo, the first fight wasn't competitive. The second fight was not competitive at all. Against Holloway, he might have won two rounds if you're being, being generous. So it's like you're having a guy who says he's great, and he says he's such an incredible fighter, but you haven't really seen incredible generational results or incredible generational performances against other top-end talent. So that's where people are starting to look at him differently. Jose Aldo looked spectacular against everybody. He dominated everybody, even the best. Even against Max Holloway, he looked good. He just wasn't good enough. Same thing with Max Holloway, same thing with Conor McGregor. Frankie Edgar's always had these nip-tuck wins, these real close wins, these real competitive wins where he looked just as vulnerable as he looked dominant, and that's taking some of the shine off of his legend as a fighter because now he's fighting guys closer to his size. Before, you could say, these guys had 30 pounds on me. Now you're fighting guys your size. What's your excuse now? And, and, and the one thing, and I like Frankie. He's got great heart. He seems like a class guy. But it seems like when he loses, he seems to have a lot of excuses and a lot of finger pointing. And he, it seems like he feels sorry for himself and he starts griping. You know, like, oh, I really beat Jose Aldo. No, you didn't. I really beat Aldo the second time. No, you didn't. He just seems, he just, he comes off very bad when he loses. And that's another thing that's going to make people, turn people off to you. When you don't seem to accept the losses, when you when you take the wins in 100%, when you lose, it's kind of like, well, you know, they didn't notice what I was doing, or they shouldn't have stopped the fight, or I was doing the UFC a favor. It's like, dude, you, you sometimes you just got to take the L and keep moving. I think Frank Yeager is still going to be a Hall of Famer, but I think his inability to dominate against elite competition while they're elite impacts how people view him. I mean, 
Connor at his peak was running through elite guys. Frankie's never really run through anybody, to be quite honest. So I, um, I'm not, I'm not, not going to say I totally agree with everything you say, but you definitely make, are making some fantastic points there. I think that I don't agree with the piece about him making excuses for his losses. I think he, that he, he is, his team seems to make some excuses sometimes, but I think Edgar uh, definitely steps up and takes the onus on those. Looking at his resume, I mean, he, he uh, it's tough to find the key wins over all-time greats. I mean, he beat Sean Shirk when he was still Sean Shirk. So that's probably like his biggest one if you want to look at it back then. Same thing with Tyson Griffin. He beat him when he was a, a, a world beater as well. He beat Jim Miller before they were in the uh, UFC together. Then he had that win over Penn. I mean, the, the first win over Gray Maynard is kind of looks different back if you look back at it now. His win over Charles Oliveira, that might actually be his most valuable win when it's all said and done. If we think about it, outside of the pin fight and his title defense, that may be one of his most valuable wins because Oliveira is putting together a Hall of Fame-worthy career without actually winning a, a, a title. So that's a, fight that, that's a fight that we may look back and look at it differently when, um, when time is said and done. Yeah, it's just like, but I hate to use Connor as the example, but it's kind of like the Connor thing. If you look at his three best wins, it's Holloway. Even though Holloway was young, you look at what Holloway accomplished now, and Connor's got that win, it just looks better. Holloway, it's Aldo, and it's, and it's Alvarez. Three guys who are all time great. Three guys who are all time great. One guy, all champions at some point. Uh, Alvarez has been a champion in what, four or five divisions? Now he's fighting in another organization. And they were all very dominant, either dominant as far as him controlling the fight completely or dominant as far as he just iced somebody, you know. And you've never seen Frankie really in a big build-up fight against an elite talent just walk through somebody. You, never, you just haven't seen it. You compare his, his performance against Aldo to Conor McGregor, no comparison. To Max Holloway, no comparison. It's not even close. You compare his performance against Cub Swanson, to Aldo against a better version of Cub Swanson, not even close. You know, I mean, even you can put Brian Ortega's fight against Max Holloway. It was more competitive and had more risk or danger in it than what Frankie was able to generate. That doesn't mean Frankie's a bad fighter, but you never see him have these moments against the elite guys where you're like, wow, this guy is really one of the best to do it. It's kind of like the Donald Cerrone thing. He's fought so many good guys. He's beat so many good guys. He's a great by default. He's not a great because he just dominated and crushed so many topping. Even when he beat VJ, both fights were just decisions. And they weren't terribly just one side where he's beating them left and right. Like when GSP fought him, it was, you know, he'd take him down, he got back. It was just, it wasn't, it never had that stamp on it. Maybe against the fight against Oliveira, maybe against Chad Mendez. But that was after Aldo had wrecked Mendez twice and McGregor had wrecked out Mendez. So it's like he's fighting lesser versions of these guys and he's still not able to put a stamp on it consistently. And I think that, that, that uh, that stays in people's mind. Jeremy Jeremy Stevens. He fought Jeremy Stevens. It was a close decision win. Then Aldo goes out there and knocks Jeremy Stevens dead in a round and a half. You know, everybody who's fought a guy Frankie Edgar's fought has usually done a better job than Frankie Edgar has had. And it's hard to put you as great when other guys have fought the same guys and done better against them. Oops. Sorry, those are all uh, good thoughts there too as well, man. 
Let's focus on um, UFC Fight Night 156, which is this weekend, where we have Valentina Shevchenko defending her title against Liz Carmouche. This is probably the only fight that really has any value on this card here. This is a rematch of sorts. Uh, the first fight ended um, due to the technicality when they fought years ago. Uh, tell me what you think about this breakdown here. Is this a fight that you are interested in seeing? Does this make you want to stop and watch this whole card? What are your thoughts about this? The thing that makes this interesting is Carmouche, since she's at Bantamweight, she was very good. She fought a good level of competition and always performed fairly well, whether in Invicta, whether in UFC, and in Strikeforce. She'd always been able to put up a good representation of herself in these fights. And a lot of that is because of her physicality. Um, Valentina's sister, Antonina, she's very technical like Valentina. She's got good skills like Valentina, but she hasn't shown that physicality and that durability and that's what separates Valentina from a lot of these flyweights. Physically, she can just muscle them. She, she's able to hold her own physically against Holly Holm, was able to hold her own physically against Sarah Kaufman, was able to hold her own physically against Amanda Nunes. And these girls at flyweight don't generate the power, they don't have the size, they don't have the athleticism, and they don't have the durability to stand up to what she's doing. So now she's more of an aggressive counter-striker, and these girls can't handle it. You saw what she did to Jessica I. You've never seen her look that devastating in the entirety of her career, and she literally walked through Jessica I, who was known as a girl who was gritty and at heart and could go round, and it was not a competitive. She almost killed that girl in the, in the cage. So now you're fighting Liz Carmouche, who is somebody who has a lot of physicality, who can fight at a high pace, has durability, and has physical strength to impose her will on someone. And that's what makes the fight interesting, because some, there's somebody in the top 10 who you, you aren't guaranteed that Valentina will physically bully them or physically be able to walk through any shot they have, or physically be able to back them up with every shot she lands. This might be the fight that causes Valentina to go back to a little bit more of her strategic, strategic aspects of her, her approach, because it's not somebody who she's just going to, in theory, she should not be able to ragdoll Liz Carmouche. She shouldn't be able to throw her down, left and right, hold her down, left and right, and just move around with every shot she hands. As far as actual skill sets, it's not close. Liz Carmouche doesn't have the takedowns or the variety of takedowns. Liz Carmouche isn't as good an offensive striker. She's not as good a defensive striker. She's not as good as a counter striker. And she's not, a good, not as good an athlete or as good at managing distance and transitioning as Valentina is. Skill-wise, this is all Valentina. The things that Liz has in advantage, she's fought more than Valentina. I think she's probably a little bit more physical, or at some point she was more physical than Valentina, and that she's actually a durable opponent. But as far as skills, this isn't a very competitive fight. The issue is, Will Liz take enough chances to get to the spot she needs to get to to do damage to Valentina? If she's going to stick with this, I'm going to be more technical, I'm going to fight at a distance, I'm going to pick my shots sort of thing, that's a hard way to win against Valentina because Valentina is a world-class striker with world-class timing and world-class distance management. Liz Carmouche wouldn't be the best striker in the local boxing gym or the local kickboxing gym down the street. She's just not. It's been a combination of her aggression, her athleticism, and her physicality. And in the reverse, she's not going to have a huge physical advantage over Valentina either. So now the question is, is she going to take chances? To beat Valentina, you have to risk getting knocked out. You have to risk getting beat the fuck up. If you're just going to make it slow pace and technical, if you're a top-end athlete like Amanda Nunes, you have that kind of power inside, you can win the slow pace match because your power can turn the fight. You're, you can control where it goes. You can force a takedown. You can get right back up. But if you're a girl who doesn't have a huge size advantage and doesn't have a huge power advantage, a slow pay fight is just going to be Valentina outclassing you from round one to round five. 
Liz is going to have to take chances. She's going to have to make it exciting. And she's going to have to be able to walk through fire continuously. She's going to have to make, she's going to have to do what Chad Mendez did to Jose Aldo. She's going to have to make Valentina fight and hope that Valentina's cardio fades or Valentina cracks mentally from being pressured and being hit. If Liz is not willing to, to bite down and force a fight, I don't think she has a way of winning this. I don't, I, she's, she's an okay wrestler. She's an okay grappler. She's not better than Amanda Nunes. I don't know that she's better than literally anybody that Valentina's fought. I don't know that she's better than Juliana Pena. I know she's not as physical as her. So it's really going to come down, is she willing to take the chance to risk getting knocked out, to make Valentina work, and hopefully get Valentina into an extended, wild, sloppy exchange where she can get those reactive takedowns, where she can grind her out, where she can land a big bomb on her. But if she's going to make it a technical, your move, my move, it's going to be a boring fight, and it's going to be a decidedly one-sided fight. If she does what I'm saying she does, she risks getting knocked out, but it's the only chance she has to make up for the lack of skill and lack of physical ability, the gap in between them. You can't close that. You're going to have to make it up in another way, and that means taking chances and being risked getting carried out of the cage to win it. So let me ask you this, then. There was a conversation going on at ESPN MMA asking if who's the most dominant champion. And two people picked Valentina. They, they think that she'll be the most dominant champion, even going as far as saying that she'll keep her belt longer than John Jones will, which I think is a slanted conversation because he's been a champion before she was even in the UFC, but that's neither here nor there. Do you think that she has the potential to be a quote-unquote dominant champion? And is that because of the strength of the division or her skill? Or is it a mix of both? I think this is more about the division rather than it is her skill right now. Um, and if people... I find it interesting that people make this statement about her, but they didn't make the same statement about Demetrius Johnson, but that's another conversation for another day. What are your thoughts about that? I, I think it's a combination of skill, physical ability, and the division. It's kind of like the Ronda Rousey thing. The Ronda Rousey thing, Ronda was a world-class athlete, a world-class judoka who was super aggressive against girls who don't know how to fight with their back foot, can't, aren't good at defensive, de- defensive maneuvers on their feet, and aren't good in transition and grappling. They're good at when they get it, their hands on you and you wrestle grapple. They're not good with being tossed or thrown and having someone snatch an armbar while they're being taken down or whatever. They weren't prepared for what she brought to the table. In a similar manner, Valentina has that same advantage. She is a legitimately world-class striker, world-class athlete who has refined her striking and her distance management to, to, pitch, perfect, to pitch perfection. There's, there's not anybody in the, in the sport, in her division, who has a comparable understanding of how to work their way into range, maintain range, or get out of range, as well as Valentina. What's worse is most of these girls aren't as physically sturdy or as physically durable as Valentina. So where, it was where you could hit her with one shot and you could rock her, she's, taken, she, she's, take, she's been on the ground and taken five or six clean shots from Amanda Nunes. She lasted longer with Amanda Nunes's power than Cyborg and Misha Tate and Holly Holm, who were all known as being very durable fighters. None of them landed, lasted as long as Valentina, and Valentina took numerous clean shots from Amanda Nunes. Cyborg got knocked out with four. Holm got knocked out by one. Misha Tate got knocked out by one. Valentina took almost a whole round of being on the bottom, head, head pinned to the mat, getting beat up 
and she still came back to win the next round and have Amanda on the defensive, holding on for dear life. So you don't have that easy ability to turn a fight because physically she's very durable. And technically in that realm, there's such a gap of skill. So it's, it's partly because of skill, it's partly because of ability, but even in women's mixed martial arts, even nowadays, even though it's a lot better than it was five years ago, it's still way behind the men in overall skills. And I'm going to say something that's unpopular. I said this on Twitter. I honestly think a lot of these gyms with males running them, I don't think they prepare these girls appropriately. I don't think they develop these girls appropriately. I think if they win, it's all good. I'm, I'm all along for the ride. I don't think they're really making these girls better because I see girls four or five years who've been fighting and they're the same fighter, if not worse. And they, they're in camps with people who get free hotel room and pay money. I don't think they have really good camps. I don't think they pay attention to the other women in the division. When you see the game plans they have and you see the approaches they have, they don't seem very well prepared at all. Like, you know, we're literally talking about fights and I'm like, if she does it, this is what she's going to do. This is what's going to happen. And it exactly happens that way. That shouldn't happen. I mean, I'm good, but I shouldn't be that good. So I think she's way ahead of them because she has a camp that though they're not super diverse, they know her very well. They built it from the ground up and they developed a very particular skill set that these girls can't match. And she also has the athleticism and she also has a lack of people with comparable athleticism or comparable skill. Nobody is. The gap between her and everybody else is a striker. The same gap doesn't exist as far as their grappling. Liz Carmouche isn't such a better grappler than Valentina. Valentina is a better striker than her. Valentina is a 10 as a striker. Liz Carmouche is like a 2. Liz Carmouche might be a 7 as a grappler. Valentina might be a 5 or a 6. That's not a very big gap. But the gap between the striking is huge. The gap between the wrestling and the, and the takedowns and the grappling isn't as huge. So as a result, she's, gonna, she's able to dominate. And I, I, think, I think she could last that long. I really think after she gets in the defenses, if Nunez is still the champion, she will move up and challenge Nunez again in a super fight. Unless Jessica Andrade moves up to challenge her in a super fight. But she doesn't have very many girls who can compete with her in any individual level. It's like you name the top people. How would Roxanne Modafferi beat Valentina Shevchenko? I can't come up with a way. How, do, how does Caitlin Chukagan beat her? You know, like, I mean, if I thought about it. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, you, you, can't, you can't actually picture a way these girls would actually beat her. You know, you sit there. Even with Joanna, I was like, well, how's Joanna going to beat her? I don't know. Based on the first fight, Valentina's got a lot better. I don't know that Carmouche is a whole hell of a lot better than she was when she fought Valentina. I don't know that. So if you look on paper, then yeah. It, if she stays focused and she keeps on perfecting her craft and she keeps on at the level she has no major injuries and keeps fighting often, it's very hard to figure out anybody in the top 10 and how they beat her. I, I, I really can't think of too many people. When I start thinking about it and figuring out ways to beat her, I'm like, well, yeah, they could do this, but does she have the wrestling to do that? I don't know. Does she have the defensive grappling to do that? I don't know. Does she defend takedowns and transitions? I don't know. You know, it's, it's a lot more. And so when you look at it that way, yeah, she, she really could be one of the most dominant champions. The, the, all the people in the top 10 on paper cannot fuck with her at all. On paper. On paper. You know, we, we've, seen some other, we've seen some other foolishness occur. From time to time. Is there anything else on this card that stood out to you? Anything else that was worth capturing? Um, I guess I would say um, the Mike Perry fight, only from the instance that Mike Perry is facing a, a Luke. I can't remember his whole name, but they're, they're fighting. And it's, it's been very concerning to me the way the UFC has once again done a prospect. 
Mike Perry has personality. He has an exciting style. He has some physical talent. And he has slowly gotten better. But for some reason, the UFC has insisted on putting him in the most difficult, challenging, taxing fights possible. And to a certain degree, I feel like it forced him to plateau too early and made him aggress to a certain degree. Because when you have those many tough fights, some of that world-class athleticism gets beaten out of you. Some of that will and that durability gets taken away from you. And I feel like the UFC did him a disservice by not building him up a little bit better and putting a situation where he can kind of round out his skills while he's getting fights under his belt, while he's getting wins, and, and kind of develop himself without putting himself at risk, kind of like they did the, the Korean Superboy. They just kept throwing him in wars. And then when he starts losing, it's like, well, we're done with you. We're going to send you on your way. And I feel like they've mishandled Mike Perry. And I feel they put him in this fight because they think it's an exciting fight for fans, which is great. But exciting fights for fans isn't always great for the fighter's career. And I feel like nobody's had enough restraint in how they've matched Perry or what they've allowed him to accept. And as a result, you've seen some very uneven performances from him. And against this kind of guy, he can win because Mike Perry is improving in increments. He is super durable. He is super dangerous. But this is another one of these fights that, win or lose, is most likely going to take something out of him and, and take him one step closer away from being, one step further away from being world class as a fighter or as an athlete. And it's just amazing to me how the UFC continue, continues to do this. Instead of using conscious matchmaking to build a fighter and develop him, they just throw him in exciting fights so fans can be entertained and throw away a potential longtime contender just to, for the short-term burst of having an exciting fight or a fight of the night. Yeah, I mean, Mike Perry is Mike Perry. I think he is going to be one of those guys that sticks around, kind of like, um, what was the guy's name who used to put on bad fights and somehow always get a decision? Um, goodness, he beat Nam Pham and all those guys. Leonard Garcia. Like, he makes me think of someone yeah. like that. Um, but I mean, you know, Mike Perry is a character in his own right and kind of a good segue to move into what I wanted to kind of close the show out today. And I wanted to talk about some of these toxic issues that are popping up in the world of mixed martial arts. There's been quite a bit over the last few months, maybe even longer. I mean, this is a long-term story that you and I have talked about from time to time. And we talked about it in a couple of different ways. And this morning, kind of really jumped out to me and I really wanted to kind of broach this I was pissed this morning and I was really upset with the sport because many times it makes me almost embarrassed to be involved with, with with this foolishness but there's a real um toxicity problem in MMA and you kind of see this in other communities as well you see it like within comic books and video games like with Gamergate and just some of that foolishness in movies when you see how people talk about movies that feature women or people of color this is a real this is a toxic nature that has been embraced because of the anonymity that's available on the internet so there's been a couple of instances this week uh we talked about Kobe Covington and his rhetoric and yeah you know there's one thing to be uh it's interesting. People talk about they don't want politics in sports, but what they really mean is that they don't want politics mixed with, they don't want sports mixed with the politics of women that involve women or that involve minorities, black and brown people and, and other people. Those are the politics they don't want involved in sports. I mean, in the UFC itself, they can be, they can be sponsored by Black Rifle Coffee, which is a definite right-leaning 
organization, pro Second Amendment, very strongly right-leaning organization. Um, they can be, they can create propaganda, basically propaganda with Donald Trump. Uh, I don't know if you saw that documentary they did about Trump uh, like earlier this year, but it was flat out propaganda. There's no more other way of, of putting it. And now you have Kobe Covington who's in a position to uh, fight for the welterweight title, getting phone calls from Donald Trump, visiting Trump at the White House. And uh, his um, sons are there enjoying the fights. And while, again, it's, so it's having a political stance is one thing, but being demonstrative towards the other side of that conversation for no other reason is something totally different. And I don't care what anyone says. MMA is definitely a right-leaning sport and is getting point is getting to the point where it's becoming almost alt-right-leaning. I mean, this is the only sport where we talk about there are white nationalist groups forming fight clubs to start a race war. There's a gym right near here where I live that is a white nationalist group. The reason why I know so is because one of my teammates is a police officer that works within that unit and has identified them at multiple IBJJF events. So as Kobe Covington is being promoted to this um, higher position, we know or we can only hope that this rhetoric and that his trash talk doesn't cross the line. We've seen it cross the line with Conor McGregor at least three or four times. We saw the ramifications of that when he fought Khabib Nurmagomedov. And I hope we don't have another situation like that with Kamara Usman, who's actually managed by the same person as Nurmagomedov is. So you know that they, that, that camp has no problem um, getting out of hand. I hope that we don't have that same situation going on here with uh, Kobe Covington. And I'm going to rant for a, a couple of seconds, like for a couple of minutes, because I got a lot of shit that I just need to get off my chest about this. And then you had the situation with Chris Cyborg this week, where she posted a picture of KFC fried chicken and tagged, and she made a joke about her African friends in it. Now, granted, you got this is one of those situations where you just got to, we just can't hit, hit the send button. You can send it to your friends. You can laugh and joke about it, yep. but you can't put that shit out there on social media because people are going to run. That's a DM. That's not a public one. That's a DM to your friends. That, that is a DM joke, and that is not something you put out there on the public space because people are going to run you through the ringer. A, they don't know the joke, and B, there's too there's too much coded language within that picture that is just not. It's just at the time and place, and she's already gone oh, through oh. enough. Go ahead. Go ahead. Real, real quick, and this this is the part nobody else thinks about. If you have friends of a different race, whether it's white, Hispanic, black, whatever, and y'all maybe y'all are cool where you can make certain comments, like you can make racial jokes towards them because they know you. Don't just think about how how it makes you look. If your friends co-sign, because you're gonna be like, well, come on, tell them that we're friends. When your friends co-sign you or say that it's okay or whatever, you put them in the cross line because now they look like they're one of the black people in the sunken place or a sellout for letting someone who isn't of that race make that joke or make that comment. You just put them in jeopardy. You've made people question them now. Like, you're a black person, you let your white friends talk to you like that? Or you're a girl, you, you're a girl, you let guys say that to you? Oh, they're just joking. No, they're not. You're just got internalized misogyny. You're just a black person who hates yourself. You're, you're not just putting yourself out. You're putting people connected with you on both sides out. And it might just be a joke, but now you've made people look at them differently. Now you've made people look at you differently. All because you couldn't keep a private joke private. Yeah, and that, I mean, it, she and she's just not in the situation where she could be making that that joke. Not right now. Not when she's being run. She's being drugged by um, 
Dana White left and right for that doctor video that she put out. It's just not smart. Not not so, when you're complaining about people making jokes and then you make a joke that's offensive. When you just got done complaining about jokes being made at you. Real hypocrite. It looks real bad. It looks really bad. It looks really bad. Um, and the big thing that came out today was Brendan Schaub and Tim Kennedy's comments. And it's just like unfortunate. Brendan Schaub was on the, the Joe Rogan experience and he shared a picture of mass shooters and it's mass shootings and it's it's a picture that's a there's no um research behind it if you look at the fine print which I blew up today it's a person who just decided to do a google search and look through wikipedia to find all people that have been convicted of shootings that either killed or injured three or more people so it's a amalgamation of all these pictures mostly of people of color and the narrative that's being pushed out when this picture is shown is that people of color are committing more acts of mass shootings than white men. We know that majority of mass murders, mass shooters, that mass shooting incidents that have occurred in the United States have been because of white men. We've had two in the past week and one the week before that all were right-leaning uh, white males who shot up um, spaces where they were mostly minorities. We see these situations occurring over and over again, but Brendan Schaub decided to put the narrative out there that why aren't people talking about people of color doing this? And this is a problem because whenever there's, this is a, a tactic that is often used whenever there's a conversation that bring, that shines a light on the plight of one group and the shortfalls of another. It's similar to when people bring up the conversations about slavery and they throw back, well, Africans had slaves in when they were in Africa too. Yes, they did, but that's of a different context than the people that were stolen from a country and brought over to the United States and treated as slaves for 400 years or uh, for, for hundreds of years, excuse me. This is a tactic that's constantly used to silence a group instead of listening to the conversation that needs to be had. This they, is a they, do, they do it to women too. We, we see they that. They do it to women as well too. How they, they say like, oh, well. well, women rape men too. You never mentioned women, men being raped until women complain about women being raped. So you're only bringing it up to derail the, the conversation. That's exactly the term to use. They continue, they use these type of narratives to derail the conversation. And then you have Tim Kennedy going on Fox News talking about that male toxicity or, or toxic masculinity isn't really a thing. But at the same time, his statement is proving that toxic masculinity is really a thing. This is a guy who said that people who have PTSD are pussies that need to get over it. I mean, Tim Kennedy is the personification of toxic masculinity. And the thing that the through line for all of these examples is that these all are all individuals that are prominent within the space of MMA or have been prominent within the space of, of MMA. So it makes me wonder, does our sport truly have an alt-right issue? I think it does. And I think it's deeper than what we already understand it to be. We can laugh and joke about some of the things that Kobe Covington says, some of the things that Mike Perry says. We can laugh and joke about stuff like that. Some of the things that Ronda Rousey has, has said, we can laugh and joke about stuff like that. But when you look at the way the toxic nature of the fan base and you look at the main demographic of that fan base, 18 to 34 year old white men, I see a trend here that is an issue because I think the UFC, like the, the UFC as a whole, I, as I've always railed on them for having an issue with promoting their black and minority women. Um, and I think that's going to continue being the case. But 
a big piece of that is the fact that this sport has a demographic that is heavily leaning in one direction and the conversations that that one direction, the loud voices that we are hearing is, is becoming an issue. It's becoming more and more of an issue. And I think we need to continue speaking out about that. Andreas Hale brought it up today too, where sometimes he's embarrassed about watching this sport, but then he realizes that he needs to be the voice to bring these situations to light. I think that's something that we need to continue to do because this toxic community is going to be an issue that's only going to continue to get louder and louder as these examples are allowed to be welcomed within this space yeah uh, I, when it comes to promoting people I, i'm always aware of it but i i, I and i regardless of people thinking i'm a sellout or i don't understand i always go back to the point of these people you're talk, talking about promoting i think they should be promoted i believe that but once again i've always said white black hispanic whatever you are combat sport actor singer if you are not dominating your demographic, it is really hard to get other people to invest money. It's one thing when you already have your country behind you, and I can literally see the money coming in and I promote you. It's another thing when on your own, you're not even selling out your local stadium and you're telling me, put all this money into me and it'll make me a star because if I put all that money into you and you're not a star, then I see the financial aspect of it. The problem I see with things such as this is Nobody wants to make any really hard line stance on anything. Nobody wants to make, it's like they're almost, they know who their target audience is. And because they know who their target audience is, they're very careful about how they address certain things. I feel, and it's hard to tell because I don't, I don't have a lot of the black fighters or female fighters speaking out. They kind of say things, but they don't say them out publicly. Nobody, no black fighter, no female fighter has ever made a comment as incendiary as Colby Covington has made. If they did, then we could see how Dana White reacted to it. And we could see, okay, well, let's see. Oh, this person got suspended for saying this? Kobe Covenant just called them filthy animals. Why am I getting suspended? Then we have an argument. But since nobody really speaks out because it would impact their fighting, it would impact their career, then uh, as a result, we don't ever get that direct comparison. But the irresponsibility comes in the fact that everybody takes it so lightheartedly. Everybody's allowing people to tiptoe around things. Like Kobe Covington said in ESPN, I didn't they're filthy and then he's like these problems in their country this happened over here this happened over here it's not racist and anybody who says it's racist is looking for thing, looking for a reason to hate me you know the things he says the comments he makes are all comments that you would hear from a racist or hear from somebody who is highly prejudiced you know you know and every time you bring up the fact that you have these kind of groups everybody's like oh well this is just a random segment these aren't this is a representative of our of our fans but the fact of the matter you have so many fans who don't have an issue with it and so many fans who respond with misogynistic comments or racial comments it makes you wonder like maybe MMA, MMA is full of racists because you look in those, those forums and I've seen Tyron Woodley and John Jones and everybody else be called the N-word on these forums. It's by people who, you know, watch UFC regularly. These aren't casual. These are the hardcore who are saying this routinely. Or if they're not saying something, they'll be like, oh, such and such fighter is an athletic, athletic fighter, but he doesn't do the work. A.K.A. he's lazy. You know, he's too lazy. He's, he's not dependable. He won't show up and do his job. Those are all coded messages directed towards minorities who are deemed lazy by 
non-minority. So it's like you keep seeing these examples of it, and everybody who's not a minority keeps telling you it's no big deal when it seems like it is a very big deal and one that's becoming increasingly more of a neat deal. And I'm not even so concerned with the actual racist people because that'll come out and you can deal with that. It's the people who were either indifferent to it or the people who could be swayed into it, which is going to become the issue. The people who won't speak out because they don't want to blow the situation up or the people who fall over into that because it's just what everybody else is doing and I'm going to join in. That's where the danger comes in because that's when it gets big. The actual straight up, I hate you, I'll fight you, I'll kill you, that's not a huge, big segment. It's those indifferent people who just let that stuff happen. That's that's the segment that gets in trouble. That's where you lose all control and things really get out of hand because now you don't, they bought into it. They can't even see it themselves. Oh, they're just joking. They didn't, they didn't call you the N word. They just said, some of y'all are lazy. Some of you are, you know, it, it just gets, it gets really dicey because people don't want, want to make uncomfortable stands because of the risk it is to their friendships, to their families and their careers. And until somebody's willing to risk themselves and really make a stand to, make to put a light on this it's just going to keep going until someone eventually crosses the line and and that's that's what worries me the most because we saw an addition of that line being crossed when Khabib Nurmagomedov decided to whoop everybody and um in the and in his crew decided to whoop everybody in the arena a couple months ago so we've seen how that can cross the line I'm concerned that we're headed back for that um situation if we don't curtail this at some point in time, but I just don't think that there's any interest in curtailing this by those who are involved with the sport. Have you, have you been have you been concerned? Like Kobe seems to really pick his words kind of carefully, but have you ever been concerned that he's just going to slip up and they're going to catch him on a hot mic saying saying something that you can't really pull back? Because I've talked to people in different camps, big camps too, and they're like, when Trump got elected, they're like, some of the people you think are cool, who you think understand what you're going through, and will laugh and listen to the music and do the dances. You find out they voted for Trump. You find out they, they're like, well, everybody has the right to speak. And they're, and they're talking about groups that go around beating people up. You know, it's like, you don't want to think of this person as this, but they're very indifferent. You know, they're the first person, well, if these people attacked you, there had to be a reason. If the cop did this, why didn't he just get on the ground? Why did he run? Why did he have a toy gun in his hand? You know, but the same people who don't ask the question when you have a mass murderer who gets gently taken into police custody as he's, you know, getting a back massage, a cold beverage. Well, they gently put the cuffs on him. And then somebody who stole a pack of cigarettes is getting choked out on the ground by four cops. You know, it's, it's stuff like that. And fighters start to notice it, too. There, there's people who they train under, people who they train with, and there's a reason they don't discuss politics. Because you start being very uncomfortable putting your career in the hands of the people who, who seem to believe things that go, that go against your well-being as a person and, at, and, and as a uh, part of a, a group, a, a social or a racial group. It's like, this is the guy I put my career, this is the guy who handles my money and he supports a guy who thinks I'm an animal or says it's okay to attack it and, and harass me or hunt me or do whatever, who justifies these kind of attacks. You know, it, it's, it's really becoming an issue and it's one that w- when it blows up, it's going to be huge. Because, you know, this is ESPN, they got a lot of spotlights on this. When this actually comes up, and I feel it will, it's going to be really ugly, it's going to get really bad, and it's going to get really out of hand. And the UFC is on a major network now. There's going to be no way to get around this when inevitably somebody slips up and says or does the wrong thing. 
It's pretty interesting, man. And I don't want to rant rant about it too long, um, but I think it's something that we need to continue talking about, continue keeping a close eye on. You'll see us writing about it on MMA ratings and in other places as well. But we'll 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 keep talking about this in the um, near future. Yeah, I mean it's it's I mean somebody has to have the conversation, and there's a lot of media outlets who who honestly don't want to and. I guess if I really, if I'm just being fair, thinking about their, they got families to feed and all that kind of stuff, they can't afford to. They can't afford to have that conversation. Everybody says just have this conversation. Remember when we had a, who was the guy who was talking about Ali Ali's, Mike, uh, the writer. I can't remember his name. He was um, on our show a couple. Mike Russell. Yeah, Mike Russell. When you look at the impact it's had on his career to, to do the research, to do the work, and he's talking about like, I can only do this for a couple more years because financially it's killing me and it's, and it's caused me to cut off all my contacts as far as fighting because... I'm going against somebody very powerful or people who want to see things a certain kind of way. There's a risk, even if you're doing the right thing, whether you're the, the group that's being harassed or you're the, one of the privileged group who can step in, there is a price to pay for going against the grain. And sometimes, you know, I'm not going to say it's right, but I can sometimes understand why somebody's like, hey, I'm in a good spot. I can't afford to ruin this for something that people aren't going to support me on or people don't really want to hear. After when it blows up and the stories come out, everybody will want to be in on it. But while it's happening right now, there's going to be a lot of people who just, you, when you see the third ESPN 30 for 30, we just kept our mouth shut because we wanted access. We just kept our mouth shut because this is how I feed my family. I just wanted to get another fight. So I tolerated the racism, the misogyny, whatever it is. You'll hear a lot of that when this gets out of hand. When eventually it will, that's the first thing you're going to hear from fighters, from journalists, from managers, and from uh, anybody connected to it. Well, I didn't want to have this conversation because, and what it would mean to me and my family or me and my husband or me and my wife who's fighting. True. So with that in mind, man, let's go ahead and close the show out. Um, let everybody know what you're working on for this week. Um, just a lot of stuff. It's uh, these events. I wish they had some more time between these events because you start working on something and then it's like somebody gets injured or there's another event. So it's like you have a very small amount of time to get stuff out. And then what's worse than when somebody gets injured and you just did a piece and you got to throw it all the way out. That's that's happened a couple times already. And it just it really makes you hesitant to really commit to something until you know what's going to happen. And by that time, it's like such a short period. I'm still doing the. I want to. I want to do the Michelle Waterson thing. I, I've got a couple things. A lot of things I'm going to do on is going to be talking about the mistakes that camps make, developing fighters and managers make in handling their fighters. Because I feel like there's a big misunderstanding in between what the fighter, the camp, and the management is supposed to be doing. And people, people are starting to see it now. They're starting to recognize the bad direction and bad advice. But I think there needs to be some clarification. For just not just fighters, but fans of fighters. Like if these guys aren't doing this for the fighter you like, the fighter you like needs to go somewhere else because this is a short-term career, and you don't have many goes at it, and you don't have many times to walk out of it with your faculties. So you need to make sure you play it very smart, and you play it very technically, and you play it very close to the vets because there's not enough money in it, and there's not enough healthcare for you to be taking risks with your future in a sport like this. Well. We got a lot to work on, man. I'm always covering uh, professional wrestling as we usually do. And we'll be back uh, this week. I have to do a recap show because this is a pretty big week in the world of professional wrestling as well. So I'll probably be back on Sunday to do a recap show. But um, with that in mind, let's go ahead and close this episode out. And Shawan, we'll be back next week. All right. Hey, thank you, everybody, for the support. Uh, Just keep looking out. We're going to keep on bringing you content and talk about the topics you will most likely not hear on all the major outlets just because they can't have that conversation. They're not allowed to. We don't have that problem. But you will hear a lot of, of not just fight breakdown, but actual social, economic, and other aspects of the sport 
to make up the sport as a whole. It's not just fight breakdowns here. We're trying to cover all the bases. Exactly, man. Have a great night. You too, sir.